Well, that was the week that was. It's over. Let it go. So sang Millicent Martin in the BBC's first, and many think greatest, and certainly groundbreaking, satire series, TW3 for short, rivalled only perhaps by W1A. The Director-General, Tim Davey, surely happy to let the last week go. We had the Lineker affair and the row over impartiality, which included calls for his chairman to resign. The Question Time presenter, another BBC star, Fiona Bruce, was attacked on social media for what she said about Boris Johnson's father. Meanwhile, on Wednesday, the corporation's local radio journalists went on strike over proposed changes. Uh, You mustn't describe them as cuts, apparently. And the letters columns of the papers are full of outrage at the decision to chop the BBC singers after 100 years. If you listened to last week's podcast, you'll have heard Paul Hughes, the former boss of the singers, explode with anger and suggest that the BBC no longer knows what public service broadcasting is. These cuts, of course, are the result of the government's financial squeeze, which includes freezing the licence fee for two years. And The Guardian got hold of some internal BBC emails to journalists which show Number 10 leaning on the BBC to change its use of words such as lockdown during the Covid crisis. And the newspaper claims BBC executives then lent on their own journalists to do just that. Well, who better to discuss these issues than Roger Mosey, a former editorial director of the BBC, head of TV News and director of sport. He's now Master of Selwyn College, Cambridge, and last year he published his book on 20 things that would make the news better. Roger, welcome to the podcast, and on leaving the BBC, you wrote a memoir of your time there and called it Getting Out Alive. Well, is Tim Davey going to get out of this alive or at least remain DG? I hope so. And these kind of storms happen in the BBC and certainly happen when you're DG. Uh, So I don't think on a scale at the moment, what happened last weekend was bad and embarrassing. But I don't think it's yet on the kind of scale that has brought director generals down. It never rains, but it pours, as I mentioned in the introduction, and all of these other issues coming forth. And the latest one, of course, is from The Guardian, which has produced emails which certainly do demonstrate that Downing Street lent on the BBC to change its language over the COVID crisis. For example, not using the word lockdown. Now, there's nothing new in pressurising the BBC. Labour's done it. Alistair Campbell was notorious for it. But there were some worrying emails there to me which do suggest that this suggestion from government was passed down, uh, perhaps too readily, to BBC editors. What do you think of that? I was worried too, and I talked to some quite senior people in the BBC uh, on the broadcasting side, and they were also worried. Now, I think the important thing here is context, and I've been caught out in the past by an email you send to people which is casual and just intended for information, which then, when it's presented to the outside world, looks a lot worse. So the context, I think, we need to understand a bit more. And, for instance, one of the elements is not reporting on the Arcuri story, the alleged mistress of Boris Johnson. And I can sympathise with that. Well, I think she's confirmed she was his mistress. <laughs> so I think we can drop the alleged. I'm just being legally careful, Roger. <laughs> Please carry on. 
Yeah, but the, one of the examples is not reporting on Arcuri. And that may well have been right, because actually she has done interviews three, four, five, six times, and therefore not doing it every time and taking it for granted and having an editorial decision about is this the right story to cover or not is fine. That I'm OK with. I'm much less OK with the idea that Downing Street is suggesting that, you know, lockdown isn't the right word to use or increasing the pressure on Labour, which is completely inappropriate. So I think it's worrying. The context needs to be understood a bit more. But absolutely, there has been some suggestion that parts of the BBC Westminster operation were a bit too close to Downing Street. And this looks like it confirms it. Which is deeply worrying uh, because it's this old issue of trust. I mean, we talk about impartiality, but behind all of that is fundamentally the question of trust. Do you trust the BBC and its journalists, not only to get it right all of the time, nobody can do that, but be trying to get it right all of the time and being open to their own prejudices, trying to correct them and be open to other voices, you know, saying their other perspectives. You know, my, my own impression is that there is still a considerable amount of trust still for the BBC, but that it's lessening. Do you agree? Yes. I mean, the figures show that trust in the BBC's impartiality is going down. And that's partly because we live in a noisy, disputatious social media world in which people have lynch mobs who come after you if you don't agree with them and they chip away at some of the BBC's values. But the big problem here, and we can't avoid it, is that the BBC at the moment has a political perception problem because of Richard Sharp as chairman. So he was a political appointee. He was a mate of the prime ministers at the time. And of course, there's then the loan issue on top of that. And you've got appointment to the boards like Robbie Gibb, who is a former spin doctor for 10 Downing Street. And I think slightly more unfairly, the fact Tim Davey was a prospective Conservative council candidate in the 1990s is added into that. But it's a real perception that the government has put people into the BBC to sort it out. And the BBC therefore needs to make sure it is utterly, utterly impartial and that it doesn't look as if Richard Sharp who is now, I think, not able to do the job, is pulling any strings. Well, he can't do the job, can he? Because uh, if he'd said something last weekend, which he should have done and should have discussed impartiality and supported his director-general, the first question journalists would have put to him was, well, possibly the second question, what about your own personal circumstances? What about that loan to Boris Johnson? Are you truly impartial? You're a long-term Tory donor, etc. So he was silent. He can't do the job. And yet at the end of this process of examining the impartiality rules, uh, at the end of the review, he'll be chairing the board which decides whether to implement its recommendations. Well, he can't do that, can he, and retain the confidence of people? Won't, people won't trust the new rules to be impartial if he's the guy who decides what they are. He clearly can't do it. And I suppose my own feeling is when I wrote Peaceful Independent about three weeks ago saying that I just didn't see that Sharp could do the job. And I'm not the kind of person who calls for people to resign, but I, I, I didn't see that he could do the job precisely for what then transpired with a case like Lineker. I now think it is totally impossible. He really, really really can't do the job. And if he really can't do the job, he is a massive handicap on the integrity and the independence of the BBC. So he really must go. And I don't think there is any ambiguity about it at all. Richard Sharp cannot be chairman of the BBC. And if he is to go, and I agree with you on this one, it's obviously vital that the Director General stays uh, because the turbulence. I mean, imagine how, how uh, what's going to happen the next two months, three months, when Labour presumably will challenge everybody who's put up to be chairman. There will be a, a concerted attempt to stop the Prime Minister choosing, having the final say anyway in the chairman. It'll get very, very messy. The last thing in the world you want 
is the Director General to go away as well. So let's assume that people will come to their senses and keep the Director General in there. But how about the way he's handled the events over Gary Lineker? It was an accident waiting to happen. I mean, social media has changed the world in which you wrote and rewrote and rewrote impartiality guidelines. Do you think they could have avoided this row this weekend? They couldn't avoid a confrontation probably with Gary Lineker at some point. But I've been talking to quite a few of my old friends, we dinosaurs from the BBC like you and me, Roger. And the view, I think, which is pretty much settled is that Tim was right to take on impartiality. Tim was right to say that impartiality matters. And I, I, I wrote a book which sort of said that impartiality was key to get right for the BBC. But what some people are saying is that Tim could probably have made it part of a more rounded package. You know, what was his vision for the BBC? What was the BBC going to be like in which impartiality was a key element, but not the defining factor? And he made it a defining factor. Now, if you do make it a defining factor, you then have to win any battles. Now, I worked with Gary Lineker. I was Gary Lineker's boss. I really like Gary Lineker. He is a conspicuously intelligent and conscientious man. He's a great chap. But Gary has always been in a difficult zone on his social media posts and his outside activities, ranging from Walker's Crisp through to Twitter. And therefore, the likelihood of Gary Lineker being somewhere in a contentious zone was very high. And if that is going to be high, you have to have a plan. And the plan was fine in saying we stand by the guidelines. And it then went badly awry when I think they suspended unnecessarily without a due process. And then, of course, looked like they pretty much caved in in the terms of the peace deal. Well, they, they, they did cave in because they had to in the short term because of the revolt and, and, and just in managerial terms. And I know you, as you say, you're a dinosaur and you don't want also to, to comment on your successors. But clearly... The director of sport and those involved advising Tim Davy did not anticipate uh, the sort of support he would get for his fellow commentators, and that really sort of escalated the thing. So that is a management failure, isn't it? It's tough to say, but it is. They did not anticipate the consequences of their actions or think them through when they suspended Gary Lineker. I think generally within the BBC, so let's talk generally about the BBC, there has been a failure of communication and some degree of leadership about the guidelines and why they matter. And clearly what you've seen happening in BBC Sport is a lot of people simply not understanding the reasons why they needed to. I mean, some people do. And I, I was interested to read reports that some people in BBC Sport thought the BBC hadn't been tough enough with Gary. But a lot of the presenters, and this is where uh, I am very wary about letting presenters have too much power. I mean, I, I was rather taken aback to see presenters tweeting, well, I've decided that we won't do the programme today. Well, um, you know, that is um, ultimately the presenter has a decision about whether they take part. But the idea that presenters are censoring programmes, especially on the basis of, I think, a rather partial understanding of the guidelines. Because what all my fellow dinosaurs think is that Gary was in breach of the guidelines. Mark Thompson said technically, but, you know, still in breach. And therefore, the BBC has a right to act after there has been a breach. I happen to think their specific actions were wrong, but the principle was on the BBC side. 
And to be clear about impartiality, first of all, it's, it's not really impartiality, it's due impartiality. As I say, you know, if somebody says 2 and 2 equals 5, they shouldn't be given equal time with somebody who says 2 and 2 equals 4. It's due impartiality. And, and there are sort of three areas, aren't there? The one is that the, the rules that apply to BBC staff, and particularly those who are working in news and current affairs, nobody suggests that they should be allowed to tweet at all about matters of political controversy. There are, on the other wing, our guests, people who come in, very occasional presenters, who, of course, have their rights to free speech and, and should be able to say what they want. It's in this middle. People who are really um, not on BBC staff but, but very well paid and prominent and are taken by the public as being faces of the BBC. It's what they say is difficult. And I think the... I, I agree with you about Gary Lineker because, you know, what's clearly going to happen uh, until the election is that the question of asylum and refugees is going to be kept on the boil by both parties for various reasons. And if Gary continues to tweet for the next 50 to 18 months on this subject matter, then he will significantly damage the BBC. And I, you know, I would simply hope that he will realise that. Yes, the trouble is that you end up doing something on a case-by-case basis. And people have rightly said, and again, my friends who are BBC presenters say the guidelines are very murky and it's very unclear who can do what and when. And the Alan Sugar case is a good example of that, which is that Alan Sugar was tweeting actually at one point, vote Conservative, and people say, well, how can he be presenter of The Apprentice and take that kind of line? And I, I agree with that. I think Alan Sugar should be caught by the guidelines. But Gary Lineker is massively different from someone like Chris Packer, so Chris Packham does some nature programmes each year and gets into controversies about shooting squirrels. And that is rather different from the BBC's highest paid presenter, who's on air 52 weeks a year on Match of the Day, the face of the World Cup, which Gary himself said at the World Cup, we're treating it like a mini panorama at the start of Qatar. And that is a level of involvement with the BBC's profile and editorial, which is in a different league, I think, to Chris Packham. But the guidelines somehow have to capture all those eventualities, and that's why it's so tough. If you were asked, would you agree to be either the person who draws them up or on a panel that draws up the guidelines, or would you say, no, no, thank you? I'd say no, thank you, and I think the BBC... (laughs) Some people in the BBC are are cross with me for diverging on some of their views, so I think I'm probably not going to get invited, Roger, but... (laughs) But, uh, but I, I mean, how, how quickly can they do this? I mean, the issues are well known. I mean, and so, you know, a lot of thinking has gone into it. It's the decisions that are difficult. What's the time frame of this? Can this rumble? We've got a chairman under investigation, if you like, by two, two different groups. Uh, we've got the guidelines under, well, not suspended, but under question. Uh, it's got to be presumably done quite quickly. What, within a month? I think it'll take a bit longer than that. But you're right, it does need to be done quickly because otherwise Gary and other people are going to be tweeting. And I think this is why it's so difficult. You can have two opposite binary positions. One says... BBC people shouldn't tweet. If you take the money from the BBC, you should not tweet about current political controversies, no matter where you work. The other way is to say, as you articulated, um, BBC news staff are captured by this, but everyone else can tweet pretty much what they want. Problem there is that I was controller of Five Live at one point, which is, of course, live news and live sport. And uh, therefore, you would have a presenter at 
5 to 12, who's a news presenter who can't tweet, and a presenter at 5 past 12, who's a sports presenter who can tweet. Or my friend John Inverdale, who was a presenter of Sport on 5 for a long time, then went to do the Drive Time programme produced by News. So it's very hard to capture quite which side of the line some people should be on. Or the middle ground is that you go for something which um, allows some tweeting and some people to do it. But that's when you then get into all the grey areas which have caught them this time round. Now, it's difficult often to get uh, sympathy for highly paid BBC presenters, uh, but let's try here and talk about Fiona Bruce and Question Time because I think it demonstrates how difficult it is once social media goes for you for rationality, really, to apply. I mean, as you know, on Question Time... Fiona Bruce intervened when a panellist raised the question of Boris Johnson's father, Stanley, beating his wife. And obviously, in front of her, Fiona had a piece of paper which had anticipated that, and she explained the circumstances that a journalist, Tom Bauer, had been told this, he said, by uh, Stanley Johnson's then wife, and that also that Stanley Johnson hadn't commented, but those near to him had said, well, yes, but it only happened once. At which point, social media explodes and a charity uh, involved in the protection of women who are victims of abuse, which has had Fiona Bruce as a patron for 25 years, virtually disowns her for those remarks. Uh, So Fiona Bruce then resigns or feels she has to resign as a result. And uh, looking at that, I mean, she seemed to me to behave impeccably. And yet uh, she's been condemned. Uh, Were you disturbed by that? I was. I think the social media attacks in the past week or two on Fiona and actually the constant attacks on Laura Koonsberg are reprehensible. And to me, I think you're right, it was a production editorial decision in that that response was prepared. Now, I think it was an unwise response. I I, I mean, you have to be ready with a legal rejoinder if somebody potentially libels somebody. But I think in this case, I'm not sure it met that threshold. And in particular, if it was prepared, the the one-off line, although that was a line that was used by the people who would talk to Stanley Johnson, the the one-off line came across wrong and I think you would not have repeated that or used it if you'd thought about it a bit more. But it's the violence of the response and indeed the way in which, and I perhaps shouldn't comment on this, but the way the chief executive of the charity immediately responds and condemns Fiona Bruce for what she said, which she said, again, it's as if we can't afford to wait to have a sensible discussion about this. Such is the pressure on social media. I have to, A, respond, and B, basically, give in. So here's an editor's view of the pressure on presenters, which is that some time ago, when I was still in the BBC, a complaint was made about Kirsty Walk and a response she had made on Newsnight to what a guest and contributor had said. And Kirsty gave a quick response within a second, which I think wasn't exactly perfect, but was a pretty good shot at a response in a very high-pressure situation. But the complaint came in, and I was then summoned to what was then the Governor's Complaints Committee. And the Governor's Complaints Committee spent 45 minutes discussing what Kirsty should have said. 
And I think in those circumstances, I finally said, look, you spent 45 minutes deciding what Kirsty Walk should have said, when she has one second to decide that. And therefore, presenters are under enormous pressure. And I take the view that generally, it's the editors who are responsible. So in a similar way to BBC Sport, where BBC Sport should have had greater editorial control over presenters, both Lineker and others. In this case, it's an editorial question about what Fiona Bruce says. And actually, if they'd seen it as being wrong, the second edition of Question Time, the one that goes out at 10.40, is pre-recorded, and they would have had an option to have edited in some way. But, you know, Fiona got left carrying the can. Well, she must feel, however well remunerated she is, she must feel a bit bruised. Let's turn, if we may, to the financial situation the BBC is in, the cuts it's making, and of course it's in that situation because the licence fee has been frozen for two years and generally there's been a financial squeeze from the government, which says, of course, you know, go ahead, BBC, make all the difficult decisions and we'll say it's your responsibility, not ours. So, So here come the difficult decisions, cuts to local radio, although we're not supposed to call them cuts, and then the cuts to the uh, BBC singers and partly to the orchestras. Now, what concerns me about this, Roger, is that there's, we're, now, we're now cutting into things that mean a great deal to people and affect the, the life of this country in a much wider way, more importantly than just the BBC. I wonder whether BBC should be taking these decisions by itself without wider consultation. For example, let's start with local radio. This Wednesday, there was a strike. Now, local media is in trouble. You can make a very strong public service argument that BBC local radio is almost more important than ever before. But that argument, who makes it? How do you make it? Yes, I'm not a great fan of regulators, and I'm not sure regulators are particularly helpful here. What I think has happened is that the ultimate culprits of the government who gave the BBC a ridiculously tight financial settlement. So the reason the BBC has to make cuts is because the government hasn't funded the BBC properly. But I think then the BBC is the organisation that should be making the choices and it's making some wrong choices. And I'm a passionate supporter of local radio and regional television and that is being hacked back. And yet you can see expenditure in some areas of television and the way that they're still using linear channels and packing programs onto linear channels when actually the iPlayer allows you to be much freer in your commissioning and probably commission less. So I think the BBC has made the wrong choice and clearly the BBC Singer's decision has gone to a huge amount of pain. But would a regulator, would Ofcom or somebody have sorted that out? Not sure. I think it should be the BBC doing the right thing. But it may have be ultimately have to be the BBC's decision, but shouldn't they be obliged to have a wider debate? I mean, take the BBC singers. Um, you're taking, if you do that, you are affecting the musical life of this country in quite a fundamental way. Of course, it would be if you, if, if you were to, uh, you know, shut any of the orchestras. And it's not that it, the BBC shouldn't do it, but it should be done in the full knowledge of the consequences for society, wider society, and give the option for some debate about what happens. But if the BBC just takes these decisions, they're withdrawing services, they're leaving a gap. And I just wonder whether they should be able to do that without much wider consequences and thought about the wider consequences of their actions. I suppose what all this adds up to, the BBC's clearly got a business vision. I'm not sure it's very ever articulated a very clear public service vision for its future, which can be the matter of proper debate and licence fee payers can actually participate in. 
It's a good view, but I think where it falls on the practicalities, first of all, um, I was in BBC management in the, I suppose, late 1990s and certainly the 2000s, when the scale of the BBC's music contribution was under debate then. And the BBC, I think, has five orchestras and does it really need five orchestras? And you can have that debate. And that debate has indeed been going on for 20 years. And it's only now that the financial pressures have become so strong. But the, the problem with your approach, I think, Roger, is that if you say, let's have debate about the orchestras, you have to know what the trade-offs are. So if you keep a BBC orchestra, does it mean you lose Radio Cambridgeshire? Um, Or does it mean that you lose Father Brown from the daytime schedule? And that's why the BBC has to take the big picture and look at all the trade-offs here. Because obviously every lobby group is going to want its pet project to survive. And the problem with consultations is the loudest shouting middle-class lobby groups are the ones that tend to get their way. And that isn't necessarily what all audiences need. Yeah, but I disagree with you on that in this sense, that I think there may be unintended consequences. And if the BBC takes these decisions themselves locked in the rooms in Broadcasting House, there'll be a range of unintended consequences. And it's important there's a debate to try and ensure that doesn't happen. And then there's the other basic point is, we're in a situation with the licence fee, in a way, of taxation without representation. That the licence fee has just us to go along with. Supposing they're absolutely passionate about the BBC singers, they have no say in that. They'll be given a range of television programmes, perhaps, that they're not remotely interested in, and something they care about passionately is removed without them having any opportunity to discuss it, without it being discussed in Parliament, without it being part of a wider consultation. It's that sense of powerlessness that the individual licence fee payer here feels that is is so important. And ultimately, if you trust the BBC, we've dealt with trust in terms of impartiality, but, you know, can we trust the BBC if we don't know what their public service vision is. Ah, but there I do agree with your last words there about we need to know what the vision is. And it comes back to what I said earlier about Tim Davey, I think, is an extremely capable director general. But have we got enough vision of what kind of BBC he wants editorially and what the BBC's role in a nation is? So we've had that concentration on impartiality. Uh, we've had some talk about digital, which has sometimes seemed um, a bit wobbly in its vision. Are we, are, are we not going to have channels? But I would want the BBC, with a new chairman and with the current DG, to say what it's there for and why it's there. And I think that's the big debate you need to have. Whereas I think if you get into something like... I mean, I, I live in a region where we have lost our regional news programme, Look East from Cambridge, and we now get a programme from Norwich. Now, of course, if I'm consulted about that, I would much rather have a programme from Cambridge than one from 70 miles away. But sometimes you have to make that kind of choice because your overall vision requires you to invest more in youth programme, whatever it is. So I think the editorial decisions should sit with the BBC, but they should be clearer and more transparent about what those are. You mean the BBC, in a way, has a business vision, which you would expect it to have with sort of businessmen at the top, which they largely are, but at the top and sitting around that top table aren't enough people with a concept of public service broadcasting and with the ability to articulate it. Actually, the people are worried about the commercial side of the BBC and the question where it's heading. It's not just a question of Richard Sharp and Robbie Gibb. It's also people like Sir Damon Buffini, who has joined the board, and they all have rather a commercial approach to this. And of course, the big question is what funding proposals the BBC put forward. And that decision about is it going to be a continuation of the licence fee or some equivalent public funding like a household tax or general taxation, or are they going to look at a potential 
hybrid subscription model. All of that is really, really big stuff. And at the moment, the board is not particularly accountable or not having that debate with the public about what the BBC should look like. So when, if the chairman goes and if the new appointment comes up and if we have, or we know we have to have a general election in the next two years, is it too much to hope for that the political parties could actually come together and agree on a new chairman or is that pie in the sky? I think it would be a great act of statesmanship by Rishi Sunak to say we are not going to make a political appointment to the chair of the BBC. And of course, the reason it's probably hoping a bit too much for Conservative and Labour to do that is they both always made political choices to the BBC. But I think to have a genuinely open public appointments recruitment process would be wonderful. And to get someone who is not seen as being in the pocket of one party or another would be such an enormous gain. And it would also allow you to have that debate about what the BBC should look like. Whereas, uh, you know, whatever you think about Richard Sharp and Johnson, a political appointment, he did also dish it out in his Sunday Times interview about what he thought the BBC should be like. And that seemed to be his personal view rather than something necessarily founded on what the bulk of licensed VPAs think. And it's really important the voice of listeners and viewers and online consumers are heard very strongly as well. You know, I, I think some people listening to this might not quite understand why we get so passionate about this or emotional. I mean, you know, every time I criticise the BBC, I think I shouldn't be doing it because I care about it so much. But it does matter, doesn't it? I mean, public service broadcasting, when you look what's happening in America, where 70% or roughly of Republicans believe that Donald Trump won the last presidential election, was cheated, there was widespread cheating at the polls, there's no evidence at all for that, where they're all sitting in silos talking to each other in echo chambers, where there is no BBC... There is a real question about the future of democracy in the United States, as there is, of course, around the world in, in, in a number of other places. It matters, doesn't it? It still matters, the BBC. Oh, oh it does. And you're right, because I think the battle in America has been lost. There is now not really enough public space to have an honest, open debate. And it matters partly the BBC should enable the voices of everyone in this country, lively, disputatious country. The BBC should be a platform for everyone, but also it should be about truth. And it should be about saying what's right and what's factually right. And uh, the trouble with social media is sometimes people take their opinions to be factually right, and that's not the case. But the BBC should be looking at the truth on climate change, the truth on the economy, the truth on the EU, the truth on a whole set of issues and giving that verdict to people while allowing the debate and um, argument about what policies follow from that. And um, it's needed more than ever, I think. Uh, the case of the BBC gets ever stronger, but sometimes the BBC makes putting that case uh, feel harder because of the way it behaves. How true, how true. Uh, Roger Mosey, thank you very much indeed for talking to us. Thank you. And that's it for this week. Unlike the BBC, we have no funding. But if you think we're providing a worthy service, please do support us. You can do it easily using the link on our website and in the description of this programme on your podcast platform. And it's a bargain at less than 50p per episode. You can get in touch with interview ideas and questions on Twitter by using at Roger or on Mastodon using at Roger Bolton at Mastodon app. Dot UK. Or, of course, you can send an email to roger at rogerboltonsbeebwatch.com. This podcast was presented by me, Roger Bolton, and it was produced by Kate Dixon. The sound was by Clifton Bank Studios, and special thanks to Quingenti. It was a good egg production. Until next week, goodbye. <laughs>